0: Today's episode is brought to you by Global Specialized Safety Incorporated. You can find them at globalssinc.com. That's globalssinc.com for all of your safety needs. Safe by choice, not by chance. Global Specialized Safety is veteran-owned and operated. Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible, with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Tremor Recovery Podcast. Holy shit, we're rocking and rolling with Kelsey Sharon, the CEO of Brass and Unity, Afghanistan veteran, and what do Mark Zuckerberg, and Elon Musk, and Kelsey Sharon all have in common? They were all on the Lex Friedman show. That's a pretty cool company you're keeping there, sister.
1: I'm trying my best, but that's a weird group to be named into. That's the first time I've ever heard it that way.
0: Well, it's true. You're you're walking among <laughs> the stars. Now, when you first joined uh, the army, you had the silly thought of you would prefer to have been infantry. Fucking why? <laughs>
1: <laughs> because I was an athlete my entire life, the the idea of working out every day and carrying heavy things that didn't intimidate me in the slightest. The idea of just being in the camaraderie and being on the front. And I've never been a person who's been been forced sitting in the background too much. Um, I think we're all pretty aware of that by now.
0: <laughs> uh, so, battle school when you're for artillery, it was what are um, the strats or?
1: So Artillery Battle School for me was out of Gagetown. It was Battery uh, W, W Battery. Yep, that's what it was. There it is, Gagetown. And you do, um, I was lucky. I went out to New Brunswick instead of out to Shiloh, which was much, much more, (laughs) I don't know if it was colder or warmer or less sucky, but I heard that Shiloh was worse than uh, Gagetown. So I was really lucky. I ended up getting, um, uh, BMQ. we ran through BMQ at BMQ Point. I was given a a choice uh, to go to 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 decide where I was going to be posted and things like that. Because at the time we had an individual in our regiment or in our platoon who was a weightlifter who had uh, ingested a ton of creatine on a very like large basis and on like a large amount on a long, long-term basis. And it ended up shutting his kidneys down. And we didn't find out until we were doing like the last leg of training. And he could not, he couldn't, the doctor said he can't be in the sun. The, his kidneys won't sustain it. So they need to switch someone. So they asked I kind of said, hey, I'll, I'll go. Are they deploying first? And they said, yeah. And I said, I'll go. So we switched, and I ended up going to Vacache from um, Gagetown instead of going out to Petawawa, where I was originally posted to.
0: So was it Lord Strats, or like what uh, artillery regiment were Oh, you for did? like
1: the the artillery unit I ended up being with, or the artillery unit I trained with?
0: Uh, both.
1: Okay. So the artillery unit that I trained with, uh, I don't know who exactly, I believe they were a mix of a whole bunch of different people that were posted out in Gagetown. Sure. Um, w Battery there was where we trained with. We had a ton of different staff. I end up having the same Lieutenant um, through basic training into Gagetown, which was fantastic for me because she was a powerhouse. Uh, lieutenant Labonte, I believe she's a major now, or she was before she got out. Um, she's a just an absolute beast of a woman and um so I was fortunate to have her um, ultimately end up getting posted back at the um the Royal Canadian Horse Artillery so the 5 Ralc and I was with uh uh hold on regiment was battery R and uh everything's in French so I'm trying to translate my head <laughs> it was uh, battery a battery R uh troop alpha i was with alpha i was m- my my uh gun troop was alpha um i was with alpha and we were in ba- our battery of the five rock wow that's really hard in english and french when you've never thought about it in english oh my gosh
0: how good is your french
1: not good anymore because i live in bc no right. one speaks barely english
0: nowhere to nowhere to practice it
1: no one speaks it out here, honestly. And if they do, it's so few and far between that to be able to sit down and have a daily conversation in French and just keep, up, keep on my language skills is just not, uh, is not in the bag for me here.
0: If you could go back and say yes to the infantry, which, uh, you, which regiment would you have chosen?
1: PPCLI, come on. <laughs> a girl.
0: Not even a hesitation.
1: Not even, not even a second. Why? I had a, I had a sergeant in basic training. Uh, I can't remember his name. He was French, but he ended up being PPCLI. He was with the jumpers before that. You know, the third, I think it was third was disbanded or they ended up changing that up. Um, but he was with them and he was really small as well. I mean, probably no taller than five, five. And, but he was a brick shit house. Like yeah. this guy was just walked around and he had tree trunks on him. And in my eyes, if, if a guy like that size could do it, then I could do it. And that to me, I said that to him, I want to be infantry. And I even tried to remuster in basic training. And they, they said, no, like artillery was too dagged, right? It, they, they needed, they needed people. So he said, you know, there's no chance. And they said, frankly, we don't want to put you with, um, we don't want to put you through all of the training if there's a chance that you might actually just fail out because at the time Afghanistan was really popping for us and they really were on constant rotations. So the people they wanted, you know, they just said, this is where you're staying.
0: What year did you join?
1: I joined at the end of 07.
0: So battle school in 07 from the guys that I know that are still in and have been in the whole time. Uh, I think you would have made it. Even being five foot fuck all, I think you would have made it. Um, just the shape that you were in at the time, your athleticism. And the pass rate was like 80%. So, Mm -hmm. uh, when I went through pass rate was about 30%, but one third, one third passed the other two, not so much. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was, it was different. They, they don't do to you now what they did to us in the early nineties. They just don't. No,
1: they can't hit you anymore. (laughs) No, I think they stopped
0: hitting in about 87, somewhere around there. It's when the human rights act came in where they couldn't actually whack you across the shins with a pay stick.
1: Um, somebody should have told one of our staff members that, um, <laughs> that would have been probably a uh, good information to have, but I didn't do battle school until the January of 2008. So yeah. I, I joined in 2007 and it was a very quick, uh, swearing in turnaround. And then January, I think it was very beginning of January. I was in S.A. Jean.
0: The first lady ever to go through the infantry, I think it was about 1989. And okay. uh, the year it, I was born three VP. So hard frickin' core, right? Now, this is the mm-hmm. 3rd Battalion that was in Victoria. And what I remember, because I got there just as she was out, so I never got a, uh, had the honor of meeting her. But the majority of the troops, even in those times when there was a lot more misogyny for sure, uh, but the majority of the dudes had nothing but respect for her because she did her fucking job. She made it through battle school, which was fucking brutal back then but she made it through and she did her three years in the third i mean christ and Mm -hmm. um uh, but she did it and did a great job but uh even being five foot fuck all i think you would have made it because some of the best soldiers i know were like five four five five
1: yeah i was really lucky i didn't have um the unit I was in, like in basic training, the the staff and everything like that, they were all really good to me in the sense of um, if I just, if I could shut my mouth for three and a half seconds and just do the job, I would be left alone. And they would, they would give me, they would let me, if I said, I'm going to carry this, they would let me, they wouldn't question it. They, they did give me a lot of respect in that sense. And in vacancy, I got, I got some respect. It depended on, it very much depended on who it was at the time and, um, and where it was. But for the most part, you know, there was, I had a solid, I had a solid group of people there um until we deployed and the kind of shit just went haywire and i think people just lost their damn minds so
0: and how many women do you think have made it through artillery battle school can't be a lot
1: oh a ton no was oh, that right yeah because even i mean i don't know uh, exact numbers off the top of my head but i i do know even in my graduating class there was probably at least four more others. Like there, it's not like I was a one-off. I mean, on the guns, actually deployment wise, I was the only female on my gun. We had a female officer though. So she ran the comms, um, uh, Catherine Fontaine, I think was her name. Um, she's still in, I believe. And and so she was there. Um, she's same height as me, tiny thing. She's an officer. So she wasn't on the guns. But in terms of my unit, and then I know our, our regiment, our battery, we deployed, there was, um, Jen, Binbin, there was another individual. And I think there was maybe like two or three other women. So we had some women on the guns. I mean, Canada's always kind of put up women. We've always given our women the opportunity. If you can do the job, we'll give you the opportunity. Mind you, they might not pass. It's not, it's not like the States where there's a double standard and there's, um, in the States they have two, uh what's it called? They have two fitness tests. They have, they have just two different. Yeah. So the women there don't have to do as many pushups. They don't have to do as many. If you're going into a combat arms, they, they just have a double standard. I struggle with that a lot. I talk pretty openly about my feelings about that. Um, I've had conversations with people like Riley Compton, who's a female officer, incredible Marine, really, really young. Great. She's a, um, Olympic bobsledder for team USA. And, uh, you know, her and I went back and forth and I said, but let me put it this way. You haven't been on a deployment yet. So let me make it cause she's an in infantry. Right. And I said, if the guy beside you is 400 pounds with kid on or two or three or whatever he may be, cause America makes some pretty big people. Um, <laughs> Well, they do. Have you seen some of those dudes? Like, if they're, if they're, say, 230 on their own, you pile another 100 and 140 pounds of kid on them. I mean, yeah. they're heavy. And like, you're not going to move them. I'm not moving them or I'm going to learn how to move them effectively. But the the fitness side is they have two standards. And I said, you know, when you've seen real combat and you've had to drag someone, I said, the weight difference matters. And I said, if, if you can't stand there when he drops and say, well, I can only do 20 push ups, so I can't. I can't pull you. Combat doesn't agree with that. So you need to either figure it out. So I believe in one standard. It's not, I don't think it's sexist. I just believe if you're going to go and do one of the most dangerous jobs in the world and put yourself on the front lines, you damn well better be able to do it.
0: It's the job. You can do it or you can't. That's it. Exactly. And It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter your gender. How were you treated uh, through battle school and on your deployment? Uh, Was there misogyny or special treatment or did it go either way?
1: (laughs) I mean, listen. There's going to be misogyny everywhere. It's the name of the game. You have a vagina and a male job. <laughs> that's just going to be what it is. And so you yeah. just need to learn how to deal with it. And for me, to be completely honest with you, I had um, a lot of experience prior uh, playing rugby, and in taekwondo, being around a lot of male, dominating, you know, very aggressive people, whom as long as I did the job properly, respected me and treated me well. They never, I never had any weird, I was really lucky. I never had any weird sexual assault, um, creepy officers or like watching me in the shower. Although I will tell you on my deployment, there was plenty of people that there has been some major things that have come out. Um, and those individuals have been protected because they're the golden child of like the regiments. And so there's definitely that stuff that's out there. I've been very fortunate on my deployment. I didn't deal with any of that. And the guys that I deployed in from, um, uh, from alpha troop alpha, you know, I didn't click with very much a good amount of them because a, a decent amount of them didn't speak English at all. Right. And there was this understanding that I wasn't trying to bro down or hang out with them. And the thing was, I just couldn't, I, I wasn't fluent. I was still struggling every other word. I, I would say like, uh, literally be like, Hey, Sajan, uh, um, I, I don't know if I can say it in French word, but it, it would be something along the lines like, um, what is this in French? And then this in English, you'd be like, Hey, Sajan, I say hey, telephone. a français a anglais." Like, what is the translation? But every other sentence, it'd be like, hey, what's this? Hey, what word's this? Hey, what word is that? And it just got to the point where I felt a little more um, secluded. So then I found myself, when we were at Fob Ramrod, hanging out with the Americans more, which then my own unit would have thought that that was not, you know, we should hang out with our people and all of that. But right before we got there, the reservist artillery unit we ripped out was really good friends with them. And the Americans would be on our side of the FOB all the time. But it was very different with the French. They didn't they didn't act the same as the rest of the Canadians that were there. They were great people, but the language barrier posed a massive issue, especially just on comms, if you were doing the OP Tower. Some of those people did not speak English at all. Like at 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 all. So it was a little you know, we had our moments. My sergeant, Sergeant LeBlanc, he's an officer now. I refuse to call him by his new rank um, because he crossed over the dark side. But he, is, he was my saving grace, Mark LeBlanc. He just deployed. He's back now. Um, but he was my saving grace. He was the reason I was able to load the rounds. He taught me how to lift them in the gym, show me how to train properly, show me how to move properly so I don't hurt myself. And he gave me a lot of grace. It's not favoritism, but he gave me a lot of grace after I got fucked up because he saw something was not right. When the person who never shuts up all of a sudden shuts up for an extended period of time, there's a problem.
0: Yeah. At what time did you realize, oh, fuck, I I think I'm in trouble here and I need help? When did it strike you?
1: I didn't. I was told, um, when your behavior changes to the point of, well, frankly, right after that operation, I can, I knew the moment my light switch took turned off anyway, right. That happened during the actual operation with the British that it was like day two, my light switch was gone. So I knew something was wrong just based off of my reactions to things and my abundance of anger and my, my quick to, you know, shoot first kind of situation. And, um, That's just an, just an analogy. I didn't shoot anybody first. I'm just, you get what I'm saying here. Um, but you know, that, that mentality shoot first, ask questions later. And that's really what happened is I was, I became really numb and really dead inside to the point where nothing mattered and nothing hurt me. And like there's, I have like written accounts of people who were on the roof with me who were like, you just stood up. I'm like, I didn't care if I died. Because it didn't matter because I didn't feel anything. And that's something that people, you know, they say to me, they're like, well, that's dramatic. And I'm, nah, nah, homie, it's not. <laughs> it's not. When you when your brain and your psyche is broken to the point where you're just all emotions, thought, give a fuck factor, turn off. Like, that's a real thing. That's a thing that happens, like, all the time. And so I came back to, once I was back at CAF, um, they, you could tell there was some stuff really wrong. I just sat in the shower and cried for a while. And then um, I think I started telling officers off. (laughs) I think it got to a point where somebody – there was an incident where my ponytail was too high and my braid wasn't – and I didn't have any extra mags with me. Um, You had to have one mag on you at calf. I didn't have any extra. I'd blown through them. Um, And I got in trouble for that. And I remember instead of me just like the warrant officer, instead of me just like taking it on the chin and being like – like we had like move on I turned around and I just screamed at them like you have no idea what it's like to fucking shoot anything you've been sitting here in the QM like you're fucking used like I went like nuclear like immediately and then they sent me to the doctors to get me checked and then they diagnosed me per- like within the week they gave me a whole bunch of medication sent me did you believe on my them? HLTA did you believe the diagnosis did I be- when, when they- oh, I knew something was fucking wrong
0: Right. So when they actually said the word PTSD, did, did you fight it or did you go, oh?
1: At first they said acute because they're like, let's try to get ahead of this. Let's start. We're going to keep you at calf a little bit longer. We're going to try to do a little bit there. Like we're going to try to like stop this from progressing. Um, and I was like, because acute just as temporary is in their eyes. Like we can fix this situation. So then that's when the meds came in and that's when they put me on a whole bunch of medication. And then they sent me on my HLTA which for those who don't know is basically your holiday point in between your tour, which was quite frankly, one of the most uh, ill, just worst decisions you could have done to someone. They, they, I knew it was my time to go, but the, the thing was, is they sent me away while I was heavily medicated after I just went through the worst thing that had ever happened in my life at that point. And still, still to this day is one of the worst things that has ever happened in my life. And, um, flew, uh, flew from Afghan to Dubai, Dubai, to Heathrow, all the way to Dominican Republic and showed up to my mom who didn't know what to do. Cause all I did was sit in the corner and cry. And I mean, I'm in Dominican Republic for three weeks. So I just sat on the beach and then I ended up meeting these Scottish individuals, which were there on holiday. And they brought me a lot of relief because the people I was just with that I felt comfortable with were Scottish and English right. and South African. And I, so I felt like I could talk to them and there would just be moments where something would happen and I would curl down into a ball and just cry. Um, And my mom didn't know what to do with that. And then she had to send me back. And then I went back and then they sent me back out to the fob and then I mean, I was drugged out of my mind that my staff, my sergeant, my staff didn't even know they give me that, that that they had given me that many drugs that I had been on sleep meds and like anti-anxiety and antipsychotics. And they're like, go put her on the OP tower with a fucking C6 and let's see what happens. Like it was just bad leadership from the get. And I'm not even talking about my direct like sergeant, like bombardier chef, like those guys were on point. My officers were on point. It was the leadership above that who picked me to go in the first place, which my Sergeant very much was like, no, she's not going. We're already short on the guns. We can't lose another person, but they're like, Nope, she's going. So he knew he had been in Bosnia. He understood he had been, you know, done infantry before he understood what I was getting myself into. And he knew I was excited to go, but he also warned me like fair warned me. Like there's a reason he gave me every extra magazine he had. Yeah. He wasn't stupid.
0: No, because you're about to be going into a very hot situation. The, yeah,
1: but I had no situational awareness. No one told me shit.
0: Well, neither did they have any situational awareness about the condition that you're in so that they could recognize it and deal with it appropriately. Their heads right. were all up their collective asses. And well, do, it wasn't do you think, just
1: that, though. Do you think it, that sorry didn't interrupt.
0: No, no, it's good. Um, do you think the military's gotten any better at this? Do you think that uh, the same situation happening say today. Um do you think the behavior would be seen and understood and you would be dealt with in a better way? Do you think they've smartened up at all?
1: I'm optimistic, but I'm also a realist. Um I'm also a realist in that I've spoken to people who have who have come off deployments um, you know, towards the end of our tour and um like uh sorry to the end of the Canadian involvement with Afghanistan. And you know I'm not 100% sure I wish I could say that I was like, yep, they're doing amazing and that they've they've stepped up. I mean, they've tried to integrate programs and give people tools and things like that. But let's be honest, like until someone's in that most of the time, it's not that they haven't been taught. It's that they're either short people or it's either that they need that individual or that that individual isn't isn't showing all of the signs or that they know if if that individual knows that they're struggling with something, they won't say anything most of the time because they understand that that will end up being probably the end of their career.
0: Do you think it's still a career ender?
1: I think it can be depending on your staff.
0: I think that's a wise answer. Uh, They will say, because I was speaking with uh, a guy who was a jack when I was in, and he went all the way to major, and he was the CEO as a major, because when you lot rep, you can't go all the way up to the top. You kind of hit the ceiling as as a major if you were non-commissioned prior. But, um, he was trying to convince me in a talk that, uh, oh no, it's not a career ender anymore. I'm like, well, all right, if you say so, you know, I'm not too sure about that though. And I don't think the troops are too sure about that.
1: If you're combat arms, it's a career ender. If you're a medic, it's a career ender. If you're a pilot, it's a career ender. Like, let's be honest. They don't want any liabilities at all. And if you've at all on paper said you're struggling with something and then they send you to go do something, you come back and you go postal or you do something i mean it's going to be on record and they're yeah. going to they're going to have something to like go back on and be like hey we told you
0: this is the place that your show and my show occupy though um mm-hmm. the and, and i'm sure you're aware of it but i don't know to what degree but your show helps so many people because it's a form of peer support of safe peer support where people can tune in to brass and unity from wherever in the world, in the privacy of their vehicle or or whatever, and nobody knows that they're listening to you or why they're listening (laughs) to you, right? Uh, And it's the same with my show. And when they hear the stories of uh, most of the guests that you have on, uh, they connect and they go, oh, okay, it's okay to not be okay because here's these Mm -hmm. hardcore hard chargers and they weren't okay. You had Nick Betts on. I listened to the majority of that one. I really enjoyed it. And um, so much good conversation there. And Nick was talking about somebody that uh, he knew really well, who took his own life, who died by suicide. And he was the last guy in the world that he ever would have seen. He's like, not that guy. And you really explored Mm -hmm. um, all the bullshit and douchebaggery that we do to each other uh, when it comes Mm -hmm. to mental health. And you experienced that yourself as well. Um, a lot, oh, yes. a lot of douchebaggery came in your direction. What did some of that look like?
1: When your major throws paper at you and tells you it's easier if you died, there'd be less oh. paperwork. Like, I mean, I mean, there's people that are just going to, it's whether they're under stress, it's whether they're struggling on their own, they have their own things and they see themselves in you and it irks them. You know, there's, there's, there's a multitude of reasons that people act the ways that they act. And unfortunately I just got the brunt of some of it because, it was easier, right? It's easier to have someone to blame. It's easier to blame the fucking victim than it is to look in the mirror and go, maybe I'm just being a shitty leader. I mean, that's just the fact of the matter is people struggle and it's okay to struggle. But, you know, for me, the, the douchebaggery really came from the the lack of leadership. And I, and I, and that's not i um, I'm not a oh, woe is me kind of person. Like I understood that I had my part to play in all of this. I mean, I was a horrible individual to people. Because I didn't know what was happening. And to the point of like saying, like, oh, I didn't know what was happening. Like, I didn't know which way was up or down, left or right. I just knew I was awake and then I was asleep. And then I was awake and then I was asleep. And that's how my body functioned. There was no emotions. There was no, you know, the only thing you got was anger outbursts. You just got anger, a lot, a lot, a lot of anger and hate. And that's because that's all I had in me. I didn't have anything else to give. It had taken everything else from me. It had taken any innocence I had left. It took, I was 19 when this all happened. I mean, it took everything out of me. I mean, we send 17, 18 year, 19 year old kids to go do this shit. And then we think that's, that they're, they're perf- going to be perfectly fine. I mean, the reality is they're not. And that's, and we act like that's not a shock. Like we act like it's a shock that all these people have PTS and PTSD and major depressive disorder. And like, we're shocked. We're all like, cannot believe the epidemic is as high as it is. And people are killing themselves every day. Really? Really? Are we that shocked? Because we send people to go wipe other human beings in existence off the face of the earth. How shocked are you? These are kids. Come on. That's like Russia right now. There's fucking kids fighting in Russia right now. 18, 19-year-old kids. Coffee or die posted a thing today. One of the guys was like, just sending a text to let you know I'm probably going to die. Not that I'm upset or anything. I'm just, this is the situation. Like, We shouldn't be shocked when children who 17, 18, 19, if your mom has to sign your piece of paper for you to go on deployment, that's a child. So we shouldn't be shocked when people are douchebags. We shouldn't be shocked when kids struggle. We shouldn't be shocked when our government over medicates them because it's easier than dealing with the problem. We shouldn't be surprised at all.
0: It's one of the reasons I'm pissed off at uh, most war movies because the people in those movies are in their late 30s, early 40s. The the people that are playing these roles. I right. was uh, like, uh, no. <laughs> Even the senior They're NCOs are in their 30s. You know, uh, sergeants and warrants, uh, sergeant majors are in their 30s. And, yeah, my
1: sergeant was in his 30s. He yeah. was dealing with a 19-year-old. Like, he was had his own family. He barely, you know, he had deployed a bunch, but Sarge had... You know, I had a couple had a couple kids, had a wife, but he was like when I met him, I think he was like mid to late thirties. I mean, my officer was like thirty or twenty eight. I mean, what do you expect? Yeah. Honestly,
0: I was the old guy, um, and <laughs> Battle School was my twenty first birthday. Uh, the war I was in was my twenty fourth birthday. So twenty yeah. fourth birthday in a war zone, and I was the old guy. You know, yeah. um, a lot of people were 22 years old on already on their second or third tour at 22.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know. was slated for tour number two the following year. I would have been 20. I would have been 20.
0: I was shocked, um, by your conversation with Nick Betts talking about the length of some of the American tours. Cause you were so right. I mean, they picked six months for a reason. It's still mm-hmm. a fucking lot of time and war, but, uh, all the people that do twelve or eighteen or more—that's too much. It too creates, much.
1: It creates a headspace. It it solidifies neurons. That it, it solidifies connections in the brain that we shouldn't be allowing to solidify. I mean, it war is gross and and hard and violent and dangerous and when you keep somebody on fight or flight like that for 18 months 12 months 16 months whatever it is nine months eight months too long too, too fucking long. long you try to rewire that brain after and you wonder why it takes people a decade to get over shit i mean common sense again
0: <clears throat> well there was another thing that um i wanted to chime in on listen to your conversation with nick um a lot of people think that they're okay after. It's like, well, I was fine. Why aren't you fine? We saw the same thing. Well, there's a couple of points on that. First thing is nobody saw the same thing. Uh, and people that are longtime listeners of my show, I apologize. I know you've heard this a hundred times before, but on my tour, there's about 2000 different people, which means there was 2000 different tours. Even my Mm -hmm. fire team partner, right? My fucking roommate that, uh, we saw a lot of the same stuff side by each. We saw it differently. He saw it through his filter. I saw it through my filter. We did not see the same thing. Our entire company living in a bombed out village. I'm a high creative person. So I was able to see what the place was before we got there. And when I saw a bombed out uh, collapsed building, I saw the families that were in it. And I was imagining all this because I'm a high creative and an empath. Mm -hmm. So my experience was very, very different than somebody that was uh, very analytical and uh, just does not connect those dots, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we had a different experience. Um, the second point that uh, I wanted to throw out there too is that sometimes our defense mechanisms, for, for you, it was severe, right? Out, and immediately observable that you were numb, and you could see mm-hmm. it right away. For a lot of people, they're, they're the gallows humor, laughing at the whore, making jokes about things that you couldn't tell anybody these stories without them ever, like never, ever wanting to speak to you again. Um, in my family, they know a lot of the stories, but they don't know the big shit. I've never told them because I can't even say it.
1: I've Mm -hmm. never even
0: said some of the shit on this show. Mm Um, but the defense mechanisms can last 20 or 30 years. We got people at the OSI clinic from like Vietnam or and Korea, mm-hmm. right? Because all of a sudden in their 70s, those defense mechanisms come down and they go, holy fuck. Yeah. I'm not laughing anymore. Right. And that's something to be aware of. All the people that are say, I'm fine. I'm good. Okay. And I hope that's forever. But be aware it might fucking not be. And I'm sure you've seen people like that too.
1: Well, I even, I float in between up and down, right? I I ebb and I flow uh, and how I am and then the state of my mind and um, depending on what I'm doing, uh, you know, that stuff comes back every day. Like it just, it's very dependent. It's uh, depending on stress. So like one of the things they'll tell you in treatment, because I've done a, way too much of it now at this point yeah. um, is that I should have, I mean, I should have had a psych degree at this point. Um, but the one thing that they'll tell you is, you know, ebb, it will ebb and it will flow in PTS and things like that. Any of those, they get exacerbated when you're stressed. And when you have regular stress, that makes those worse. It makes sleep more difficult, which then makes – you being around people more difficult. Your fuse is shorter. And those types of things just snowball, right? It's a snowball effect. And it doesn't look like it's much at the time, but it starts with something small. And then if that then triggers the lack of sleep, then that triggers X and then that triggers Y and then that, you know, and it just, it goes and it goes and it goes. So it's an ebb and a flow and it's not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not... Um, even to this day, I mean, it's uh, that was in 09. I was out in 11. I mean, even to this day, I still have like that. I have a, a tape recorder that plays in the back of my mind. And it's really just dependent about how much it wants to be intrusive that day, how much that voice wants to be loud and and, and how much I win and how much it wins. It ebbs and it flows. And I think that the biggest thing that we've done a good job of um, with uh, this past 20 year war was we've given individuals. And uh, uh, the silent nod to the older vets, like the Vietnam vets, the Korea vets, the some some World War Two vets that are still surviving in America. Because I don't think do we have any left in Canada.
0: Oh, there might be a couple.
1: Yeah, but those ones. I mean, the ones that are still kind of super with it. Like it's given those people an understanding that it's okay to kind of talk about it, or it's okay to say, "Hey, that I'm just not having a great day. Like my mind's just somewhere else. Like just giving that silent nod that it's it's you know, we're okay to have those conversations. We're okay to open up and, 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 and just feel vulnerable. And that's one of the biggest things that I've tried to do is because I didn't feel like I could be vulnerable and not that I I had the capacity to, even at the time, frankly, I mean, my feelings just kind of switched back on like in the past five years. I know that sounds uh, very odd to say, but it's true. They just kind of slowly started coming back. And I got to tell you though, sometimes life is a lot easier when you're numb, Yeah. <sighs> Because now I've swung from like super, super, where's the camera? Super, super numb to like, ha, so much emotion, so much feeling. I feel everything. <laughs> that's too much. I need to swing back to the middle. And I haven't quite made myself my way back to the middle yet. But, you know, that's like anything. You know, you have a big upswick and then you kind of, everything always kind of comes back to where it should. It's it's kind of like the law of the world, isn't it? You know, things will eventually settle. They will do what they should do. But that takes work and it takes time and it takes having bad days. it takes having those good days and trying to hold on to them. It takes therapy. It takes, you know, medical intervention. Sometimes it takes psychedelics. Sometimes it just takes having someone safe to talk to that. You can say the face melting information to that. You feel safe. Like you've actually chatted with a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine, Griff, um, from combat flip-flops. Yeah. And, um, Griff is, was, was a, a big part of my life. He's, uh, over the past two years has become a very, very large part of my life because he, he introduced me to the the thing that ended up g- saving me to the point where Brady, really my husband, pulled me out of everything and we were doing everything we could, but we couldn't, I couldn't pass certain things, certain things I just couldn't move forward with. And he saw that when we had a conversation one day and offered me an opportunity to go with heroic heart somewhere to do ayahuasca. And that I needed, I needed that extra push. I needed that that one other thing, cause medication and talk therapy and other EM, EMR and all those other therapies aren't always for people, you know, equine therapy, those types of things don't always resonate with people. I needed something aggressive. I needed something to shake the, the, the core of me, not my humanity, but like my soul, I needed to be reset. I needed to be cleansed. I needed to, to know that I could let go. And that's, where ayahuasca came in. And that's really when the turning point of like my, my healing really, really, really began. And so oh. even, even a year and a half ago, I was so fucking unwell.
0: Out of everything you've done is ayahuasca, the best thing you've done as far as healing.
1: Yes. Yes. That and cannabis. So cannabis was the first. Um, I, it got me off of. I was on ten different pharmaceutical meds. When I look at my medical records, I can see in BC you can see all the meds you've been prescribed every month, right? And you slowly, slowly over time, this downtick, and that's when cannabis got introduced to my life.
0: Do you see and cannabis? Started, uh, do you see cannabis as coping or healing?
1: Healing. I don't use it as a. You can cope. You can use it as a cope, or you can use it as a healing. It's 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 like anything. I'm very spiritual. So for me, cannabis became a spiritual thing. And if you understand plants and you understand psychedelics to any sort of extent, there's the, there's kind of a pyramid, right? Ayahuasca, Mama Aya, she's up here, right? And then you've got the two, what she considers or um, psychedelics and all of that kind of talk about, which are like the grandchildren, the, the things that you use that are like slow integrations into the psychedelic world, which are psilocybin and cannabis, and what I learned is that you can use cannabis to completely numb yourself you know blow your mind apart and not pay attention to the world and just live you know under this fog or you can use cannabis with respect intent um, uh, caring ceremoniously uh, you can use it as a way to heal it can be a tool it's not the it's not the key it's not the it's not the um, the magic bullet, if you will, but it is definitely a healing modality when used properly.
0: I just did a monster dose of shrooms a week ago. How
1: was that? Dude.
0: (laughs) Dude. It was like 12 12 grams.
1: Get some, homie.
0: Oh, fuck. But the words that you used, reset, my spirit, my soul told me you need to hit Control-Alt-Delete, dude. Control-Alt-Delete. And that's what I did. Um, holy fuck. It was too mm-hmm. much. But I would do it again. I would totally do it again.
1: Psilocybin Even though, is a lifesaver, man.
0: Yeah, it is. Um, there's a lot of different strains. I'm a big fan mm-hmm. of the golden teachers. Uh, that's what I... Uh, I've done two hero doses now. First one was okay. about half this one. <laughs> yeah, I was swinging for the you fucking You hard fences. in the
1: paint. Ooh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I needed it. And, uh, I, there's nowhere that I've found more relief than psilocybin. Nowhere. You know, um, that
1: makes my heart happy.
0: There's nowhere that I've found more relief and I, I fucking needed it. There's a couple of, uh, big ones that I, big rocks that I needed to get out of the rucksack and they're out. Now, the trick is don't refill the rucksack. And I can hear the mushrooms talking to me uh, Mm -hmm. saying, It's like, okay, well, we gave you the reset. Now don't go back to, you know, like have some better habits, eat better, switch from coffee to tea. I'm drinking coffee right now, but I will have tea after.
1: But coffee is okay. Listen, tea often has more caffeine. People fucking get that twisted. Tea has a lot of caffeine, it's moderation. And it's, it's, you don't have to, I think that's what people do though, hon. is they reset themselves and they do it. And then they think all of a sudden I have to make all these changes. And if I don't, then the effects won't last. It's like, no, this is a, we're integrating small steps, baby steps, because you can achieve small digestible bites. You can't take a whole cheeseburger, depending on the size and drive it into your face and go, yeah, I'm fine. Like it doesn't <laughs> work that way. You got to do small little bites at a time and those big bites get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then the incremental change has now turned into something permanent and massive and sustainable. And that's the key.
0: Well, I think the key too, is to try something and keep your fucking feet moving. If you're in hell, keep going. You know, uh, if you're sitting, if you're sitting still and doing nothing, well, that ain't going to help shit. You know, right. you're going to do nothing but suffer. And people get caught in a negative feedback loop, especially the, the mm-hmm. wounded veter- veteran status. Some Don't people love it.
1: Yeah, they eat that shit up. There's always going to be a part of the population, yeah. though, that has the woe is me mindset. And listen, that's okay. Let them live in that for a minute. But
0: it is the minority. Pull
1: out of it. Oh, it's it's damaging. It, it's it's um, yeah. It's difficult in the community when you hear people doing that because you're like, you're, you're taking away the legitimacy of what this is. But my hope, and when I see people like that is I always try to approach it with, how are you doing? How can I help you? What do you need so that we can move you forward instead of coming at it? Like, Hey, I see that you're just milking the system and you're like, I'm this guy. I'm that guy. I'm doing this. I'm that. It's like, "Mm, you're doing nobody a disservice, but yourself.
0: And it's true. You you deserve better. There are a few that milk the system. That is true however the if you were to somehow graph it i mean nobody can but from the point from the position that i hold in the veteran community which you hold a very similar uh position you know we're center points where we get a lot of fucking stories there mm-hmm. it, for every one person that's milking the system there is a thousand that isn't asking for help
1: because Absolutely. they don't want to be
0: seen as the fucker that's milking the system uh the the term that nobody wanted to be painted with is malingerer right Mm. the mir commando nobody wanted that because that is the lowest of the low the bottom of the run so people would be like oh i got a broken leg i'll just have a sepulchral i'm good fucking good Mm you know ptsd have a sepulchral maybe some foot powder (laughs) you're fine have
1: some advil you'll be fine oh yeah
0: airborne smarties good to go
1: sir sir there's a bone sticking out of my skin just take an advil you'll be fine
0: yeah airborne just take an Advil, you'll be fine we're good <laughs> we're good just uh tourniquet splint and go
1: yeah you're fine you're maybe fine. somebody
0: take 20 pounds of my kit you know just 20 yeah. pounds but other than that no. i'm good no
1: no give me an extra 20 <laughs> yeah exactly right But that's because you and I are cut from a different cloth. And a lot of people are. And then some individuals joined the military, frankly, because it was an easy choice. I chose. I don't even know why I chose. I met a lady on a bus. Literally gave me like a moment in time. And it was just like, life changed. Full, full 180, right? I don't know why, but it did, and in my eyes now, I, I see that as divine intervention. And I don't say the word God because it's not God to me. It's it's the world, it's the universe, it's I, it's bigger, it's it's everything. And I talk like I'm so woo woo now. It's so painful to be around me, <laughs> but but the woo woo is real. Oh so real.
0: So it's just a matter of how you frame it. You know, if somebody's going to dismiss something because it's woo woo, I'm like, okay, study quantum physics. <laughs>
1: Because yeah, it's but you the come same. at it like that. I come at it like I have palm tattoos. <laughs> Take me seriously. <laughs> Let's talk about the woo woo. I, I don't got go, I don't
0: got the cipher here yet, but I will.
1: Yeah, you will. I'm
0: going to get the cipher.
1: You got to move the hands, man. The hands are where it's at. I'm all about the hands.
0: I got I this. Hands. I got this tree on here.
1: Nice. When, when I finally nice. meet
0: you, I'll explain this tree properly. But it's my family. The whole family's That's in that beautiful. tree. It's That's cool.
1: beautiful. That's beautiful. I love that so much.
0: <laughs> it's so good.
1: I do. I love, I love meaningful things like uh, tattoos to me are so much more than just art on the body. Right. They're, they're uh, a, freeze, a moment in time, like a snapshot that you get to keep and wear and, mm. and remember and signify something so much larger than, than just like the tattoo culture. Right. And I think, I, I think they're fantastic. And frankly, if you, you have me on another five years, I'll probably from the neck down. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> Fuck, let letter rip.
1: Oh, yeah. Yep. it's bad. <laughs>
0: having your show, I've heard Joe Rogan talk about how he has evolved as a result of his show, as a result of having all these guests on. Uh, this is episode 191. I'm certainly having that expect, um, that, that same thing. The size of my network is massive now and all that. The journey that you've been on uh, since the Jocko show, I mean, holy fuck, you know, um, the, the people that you're hanging with how have you changed as a person because of all of these interviews you're almost 70 episodes or something like that now uh we're gonna
1: hit 100 on april oh
0: so you got them in the 14.
1: hopper we're double we're double release every week now monday friday now we this year we we did a year to kind of test the waters and see a year one a, a week yeah yeah so yeah. we do um yeah so we did it a year it, it was a year in um I think our year was uh, November where the year mark was for our first year shows. And we did one a week and we wanted to see how people would respond what the workload load would look like recording load would look like, and um, just see if anybody really even cared if I had anything to say. And, um, the first year went really well and we doubled up. So we're Monday and Friday. Now we have episodes Monday and Friday. And then every other once in a while, we'll have a three a week. It just depends on the guests and what the schedule looks like. Cause I still do run the company as well on top of this. So you're going to see a, you know. a
0: big, big spike because uh, the volume uh, matters. It's not like people aren't keeping up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's something about the volume when I'm doing two, three, four a week. Uh, there's an overall spike, you know, it's uh, yeah. so you're going to see a big, That's big spike. Goal.
1: That's the goal, right? I want to be doing my, my, if you would ask me what to do, like what I want to do, I want to do this full time. I want to do four episodes, five episodes a week. I want to do this full time. I love it. The show has helped me grow. Um, it, you know, what people don't see is the five years of grinding and flying every other weekend to places all over North America and the world for my brand. I mean, I, I didn't show up and say, I'm going to do a show. Like I've been growing a brand Brass and Unity for five years before there was these things called social, uh social, was it? social companies, socially conscious companies and all that shit. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm ahead of that game. I've been donating 20% of my net proceeds since, uh, 2015. I've been working with people to, to have my stuff in 200 retailers before, you know, I've, I've done the work. I've done the grind. People don't see that. And that's okay. They see basically, like you said, from, from Jocko on. And frankly, Jocko was a an opportunity and a it was just another show for me. It wasn't anything, anything crazy and special. You put me on Rogan. That's, you're going to get a different response from me, you know, <laughs> going on someone like going to talk with Joe or even Whitney or even Tim Dillon. Like you're yeah. going to get a different response. You know, Jocko read a book. It caused a lot of, uh, shook a lot of feathers for me. And, um, ultimately the episode isn't up right now. Um, I've been trolled pretty aggressively again, you know, being a woman has its, uh, has its bullshit, but, um, you've been trolled you know, because I,
0: of the Jocko show.
1: Yeah, yeah. I had an individual from the UK write Jocko and um, forced Jocko to put the episode down. So Jocko sided with them on that front and uh, said they'd put it back up and I'm still yet. Uh, Well, this was a guy who claimed that uh, basically my entire tour was stolen Valor. So it's a good time. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. I don't care. (laughs) You want to live your life and you want to hate on others? Do you, homie? I got me. I know what I'm doing. I know my truth and I know my story and I'm ready to put it out in the world, right? So it's not stopping me, but Jocko definitely was a moment for people to kind of realize who I was in a bigger way. And, um, you know, at that point we had already done Carson Daly. We had already done GMA and the Today Show and those things for the brand because the brand is my heart and soul. It's a piece of me that people wear and walk around. That's, that's what the brand is to me. And, um, so we had, uh, that episode came out, people kind of started to take a little bit of notice for sure. Um, but up until that point, you know, I'd been grinding, I'd been grinding. I decided we were going to do a show. We put the show out show did well, right from like the first 50 episodes. I got bangers. I got bangers coming to left, right and center. And it's because people were respecting what I was trying to do and saw me for what I was trying to do, which was just unify, create people to have a community and love and support and, and tell their really nitty gritty stories. And, and give them a, give them a safe platform to do that where I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to give them shit, but I was always going to, you know, pry a little bit more than maybe another show would or a non-traditional show would and have a long form, uh, uh, a long, uh, long, uh, long episodes, like one to three hours kind of thing. And really give people who have difference of opinions and difference of views, uh, a spot to have a hard conversation. Cause we don't do that anymore. And you've seen that Joe's lost um, like 70 episodes, I think have been taken down of his and, there's just an attack on freedom of speech. So this show is, has helped me grow in the, not only just helped me grow, but it's helped me learn how to listen. It's helped me learn how to see other people's perspectives. It's helped me learn that there's so much more, um, I can be doing. There's so much more I should be talking about. You know, it just gave me an opportunity, um, to just find myself if you will, with people, it it just gave me that, that freedom again. And then I got the opportunity. I put an Instagram message out kind of to the world and literally a story and said, I want to talk to Lex and Russell brand. And, um, I meant for my show. <laughs> I didn't yeah. mean to go on his show. I literally meant like, come on mine. And then, uh, that night Lex saw it and uh, messaged me. He's like, do you want to come to Texas? And I said, sure. Once I'm done with the pullout stuff, I'll fly down. So, you know, he, he I had an incredible experience with him. Um, it was, uh, He's an incredible human being, one of the greatest minds of our time and our generation. And I'm, I'm honored to you know him and and have had a, an opportunity to sit and chat with him in his home. And he took me for dinner for my birthday, and it was really just. um, He's a he's a robot man, but he is a a true genuine love matters most to him. Humanity matters most to him. I love Either his show. Matters.
0: He is uh, he puts on a ma- every episode he puts on a master class on how to ask a good question
1: i know that's the thing when i went down there i was sweating so that's why so people are like oh she took her jacket off because she was flirting no homie i was sitting across one of the most brilliant minds of our time i barely graduated high school and i was sweating (laughs) so much i'm like hey lex hey buddy i'm really hot because he was like i wear a suit on the show so you dress however you want and i'm like oh i'll come correct don't you worry about my suits i got suits And I was like, just so hot. I felt so bad, but you know, he's, um, he's a brilliant individual and, uh, it was an honor and, um, a privilege to, to sit with him and, and, and have a conversation. So, um, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the people that have stuck with me. I'm grateful for the people who have seen the bullshit about me and been like, that's, we know her. And, um, you know, that's people like Andy Stumpf, that's Brian Bishop, uh, Griff, Iggy, like friends of mine, my pack members, my homies, my people, they, they'll they go to bat for me. They'll go to bat for me until they're blue in the face. Some of the Brits I served with, same thing. Noble, Watson, the rest of them. These guys are my people and they've been my people for, for a long time for a reason. I'm really grateful. And the show has given me a a chance to meet more of those people and, and integrate them into my life. And I'm glad I'm, that they uh,
0: have your back and I am so sorry for the haters. There is uh, I, I keep nah. waiting for somebody to accuse me of stolen valor. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm waiting get for it. Give it time. Well, the bigger you get, the more haters you get. It's kind of a, uh, Hey, I made it. So I'm kind of waiting for my haters. And when I, when they finally show up, I'll be like, yes, I made it. Yeah. I made it to the haters. So many
1: people reached out to me and were like, Hey, I just want to let you know when Reddit pops, that's how you know you made it. (laughs) And I was like, cool. I guess, I guess the, the way to make it is to have people talk shit. You know what? Talk away.
0: Talk away. I'm doing just fine. 20% 20% of your profits at Brass and Unity, which is a jewelry company. We haven't even mentioned this yet.
1: Yeah. You and make jewelry. There
0: you go. That's that's badass right there. Yeah.
1: We make, uh, we make jewelry out of... Uh, well, we used to do them with original spent casings. Now, because of mass production, we make our own casings. And um, really? we put them into jewelry. Yeah. So, this is a cut-down 338 casing here, and it's magnetic, and they just... So we, we make um, high-end pieces. We make everyday pieces. We have this uh, buddy pack coming out we did with Vet TV. We're going to be launching with them and some other companies. And it's just suicide prevention, man. The whole thing was art therapy pulled me out of my darkest times. And uh, gave me an opportunity. And I ran with that opportunity. And um, fortunately, you know, we've been acknowledged for that. In Canada, we were nominated for a Fashion Impact Award and philanthropic work for Canadian art and fashion. Um, You know, our designs have been acknowledged. We've been on Ellen and a few other places. Kevin Hart and them have supported. Julian Hough, Buble. Um, And I've, I've been nothing but fortunate. I have nothing to complain about. I have nothing to complain about. I'm very, very, very fortunate. I wake up every... Every fucking morning, thanking, thanking the world for just letting me wake up and letting me spread my friends message and keep my friends alive and their stories alive and the platform to talk to others who are struggling and let them know that they're not alone and that they can do this too and that they can try and it'll be okay.
0: We're almost at time. Uh, where yeah. where do some of your proceeds go?
1: So in Canada, how it works is when you um, purchase product from Canada, the proceeds stay in Canada, and if you purchase it from the U- U.S., same there, U.K., Australia, other well, everywhere else, the o- organizations stay there. So in Canada, we're big proponents of vets. Um, oh not of vet solutions. <laughs> of vets, uh, they deal with homeless and vets. Uh, we've worked with Honor House is a major, major donor of ours. Honor House has been a big proponent of unity for a long time. Um, in the United States, uh, we're now starting to work with Heroic Hearts, Vet Solutions. Um, SOA, Fit Ops, that's who I'm going down to do the uh, the run with next week. But um, one more wave, there's there's plenty of organizations that need support, but um, Defenders of Freedom, I mean, there's I could go on. I could go on. But we have a long, long list, and I'm really proud to be able to support them in any way that I can.
0: Well, thank you for supporting this organization, which is just me. I'm a one-man show, by okay. joining me today, my friend.
1: I'll be back, I promise. Thank you so uh, much hey, for having me.
0: Hey, little sis. I'll be holding you to that.
1: Hold me and bother me every fucking day until you get a date on the books. I promise you that's the way to do it. Well, you
0: got to have me on your show. Can we do that?
1: Uh, Yeah. I'll book you in at the end of March as soon as I'm back from Texas. Fuck yeah. I like it.
0: All right, sister. Thank you so much for being a guest. Please stay on the line. You are listening to operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, including jewelry makers. Today's episode is brought to you by Global Specialized Safety Incorporated. You can find them at globalssinc.com. That's globalssinc.com for all of your safety needs. Safe by choice, not by chance. Global Specialized Safety is veteran-owned and operated.